Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of a current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Hey, listen, there's about 22 women that are walking from Melbourne to Canberra. And today on the show... The Tamil community in Australia are demanding for protection visas and more action. A study shows increased nighttime light is linked to higher mental health risks. And later today. Including social cohesion has been sorely lacking for too long. I'm pleased to say that support for migrant diversity as a way to make Australia stronger has increased steadily in the last 15 years. The Australian Cohesion Index, led by Scallon Foundation, highlights societal changes. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. The Tamil community across Australia will join forces to go to Canberra and demand the federal government to grant more than 10,000 protection visas for this population sector. Brisbane resident and third-generation Tamil refugee Sudhesh Somu has been in has been in the limbo for the last 13 years without a protection visa granted, and says the federal government. Ha- and says the federal government needs to do more to give refugees a sense of peace and belonging. The wise Eduardo Jordan asks Mr. Samu. The wise Eduardo Jordan asks Mr. Samu how the walking protest to Canberra came about. Just recently, probably about two months ago, I went to Melbourne to connect with other community members, and I also participated in some of the rallies and protests, especially with asylum seekers asking for permanent protection and settlement in Australia. And during this time, I was able to speak to some of my contacts from a long, long time ago. When I was a kid, I was detained in Manus, and this woman that was also detained there, she met me and she spoke to me, hey, listen, there's about 22 women that are walking from Melbourne to Canberra. And the plan is for us to get through the 650 kilometers and we want to demand the government to look at cases. You know, we are so desperate. We, you, uh, you have brought us to a position where we have no choice but to do this because it's already been 11, over 11 years. And if we don't make any noise or if we don't bring this up to the surface, we could be put in this position for another 10 years. So these women are gathering in the parliament in Canberra on the 18th of October. And many asylum seekers have planned from Brisbane, from New South Wales, and also Victoria, and possibly other states as well. All of them are coming to the parliament in Canberra to, um, I guess, rally and sit down and, and ask the government to make a change now. And what we want is permanent visas, and when we want it is now, because we have been here for 11 years. Wow, 11 years. I cannot imagine not to have a visa in 11 years. So um, I also understand last week you were part of a protest at the Department of Home Affairs in Brisbane CBD to demand protection visas. How was the vibe from that protest? It was quite peaceful. Honestly, it wasn't even a protest. If I'm being honest, it was simply a moment for us all to share our worries and concerns. We got together and we just really held hands and just said, you know, let's all stay hopeful. We just keep educating the wider community because it is quite unaware. A lot of people are quite unaware of what is going on for asylum seekers in Australia. 
and nobody knows about this injustice. You know, it's there's no justice here. There's no equality and rights here. So not a lot of people know about this. So it was more about getting together and raising our voice in what is going on and educating others. That's that's what was going on. Could you please describe for our listeners who are unfamiliar with this, how is it like not to have a resolution for a visa application? To not have our matters resolved, even though we have expressed completely wholeheartedly our stories and our journeys, it's when they hear those stories, we want them to acknowledge that and show compassion to that. When they don't want to listen and when they when they reject our cases, it's like they don't even consider humanity. This is human problems. We are living people who go through living problems and we are here asking for what is what has happened for us. We want a resolution for that. We don't want to go back to that because we have escaped persecutions. We have escaped war and we have come to safety now. And finally, this is your time as a government to please grant us protection. But when they say, no, it's being rejected, it's like, no, no, we don't care. You know, according to our criteria, you are not an asylum seeker refugee. It's quite painful to hear that. Now, uh, when the Labour government started its uh, ministership uh, in 2022, there was the Bilawila family granted, you know, the permanent protection they needed. So what are you expecting from the federal government when the Tamil community and the refugee women arrive in Canberra? next week i am expecting for the government to act faster than how they have acted in the past what i mean by that is previously the way they processed these application was actually called a fast track system which was introduced by the liberal and it was only just spoken about by the labor government saying that system is flawed it is a failure and we need to change this up and we are going to put this much amount of funding into this processing. We're going to add this many people into each areas to make sure the processing is happening faster. And this has happened 11 years later. Now, how can the rest of the community uh, support you in this journey? Currently, we have petition online as well. We would like the Australian community to view into this, look into these stories and see what people and how what sort of extent these people are having to go in order to secure those Tamil refugees Sudhesh Somo ending the story by the wise Eduardo Jordan a study has found that increased nighttime light exposure raises the risk of mental health disorders, including depression and self-harm. As today marks World Mental Health Day, we look at the impact of overexposure to artificial lights. Associate Professor Sean Kane from Monash School of Psychological Science speaks to The Wire about the power of light. Our, our bodies evolved to get bright days and, and dark nights. And we actually have a a clock in our brains and that clock um, knows what time of day it is by the, the light it gets. So light during the day uh, confirms that it's daytime, but getting light at night is a very confusing signal for the body. So it causes a, a, a dampening of your rhythms. So your core biological clock is less able to control all of your physiology. So it leads to sort of poor physiological control. And one of the things we know that happens soon thereafter is uh, mental health 
issues, especially depression, is associated with a low amplitude, a, a weak internal rhythm. And uh, does that mean um, also light during nighttime as well as daytime or just specific to light during daytime? It's, it's interesting. There are opposite effects by time of day. So if you get light exposure during the day, it enhances the strength of your clock, your internal circadian clock, which controls clocks throughout your brain and all of the tissues of your body. So light in the day is great. It enhances the strength of your clock. Light at night has the opposite effect. So it weakens your clock. And you can imagine, uh, you know, your clock thinks it's nighttime. You're get, getting light exposure. Your clock then gets a signal. I'm, I'm wrong. It's actually daytime. And so it shifts its time and it, it tries to catch up with, with this information, uh, but it ends up being weakened in its ability to control uh, your rhythms throughout your body. Uh, what about light, uh, artificial light during the daytime? Does that uh, impact, I guess, your, your mental health? If you don't get enough light in the day, you'll tend to have uh, more risk of uh, mental health disorders. So we found for, um, you know, for major depressive disorders, self-harm behavior, PTSD, generalized anxiety, even psychosis, that brighter light in the day was associated with a decreased risk of those things. So our modern lifestyles where we spend a lot of time indoors under artificial light, and it might seem bright enough to see by, but it's not bright enough necessarily to get a signal to your clock that it's daytime during the day. So we, we need really much brighter light. And if we must be indoors, at least we should be using light that mimics daylight better. So we, in general, our, our light in the day is too dim. We need brighter light as, as bright as we, we can during the day. Yeah, so in the study, um, we use data from close to 87,000 people who are using a, a wrist-worn light sensor. So it measured light and activity. Uh, we measured their everyday individual light exposure patterns for a week and then you know, related that to their uh, mental health outcomes and, and mood and even well-being. Uh, and what was incredible is it was a really powerful effect no matter what type of mental health or, or moods you, you looked at, um, it was always a very similar pattern of bright days, decreasing risk, um, and uh, bright nights, increasing risk. And how uh, significant are these findings on our overview of um, society? Well, we've... We've really gone into uh, you know, into this reverse situation where, you know, in, instead of getting these very bright days and dark nights, and in modern society where we spend around ninety percent of our time indoors, we get way too little light in the day and and way too much light at night. Um, and in, in a way, we're you know we're we're kind of driven especially toward the light at night because light is sort of rewarding itself. Because light makes us feel good, we tend to seek it. Uh, and I, I showed a few years ago that light suppresses the uh, activation of this area of the brain called the amygdala, which is a fear-producing kind of negative emotion region. So light will shut that down. 
if we have total control of our lights and can turn on lamps and look at our phones at night, um, we'll probably feel better in the moment. But in the long run, it disturbs rhythms throughout our brain and body. And so the, what feels good in the moment and we're driven to do in the moment has really poor long-term consequences. You know, the, the, the awareness that light is really powerful generally just not just our mental health on our mental health but on our, our physical health our longevity you know I, I really want to bring awareness to the fact that that light is powerful that was associate professor sean kane from monash speaking to the wire Improving multiculturalism and health contrast, declining trust and belonging, as previously reported by The Wire. The Australian Cohesion Index is a research initiative led by the Scallon Foundation Research Institute, offering an overview of Australia's social cohesion and well-being. Today we hear from reporter John King summarising some key details from the report with expert analysis from Dr Kudzai Kanhutu, Professor Kate Reynolds and Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs, the Honourable Andrew Giles. Drawing and analysing data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics Survey of Income and Housing, the National Health Survey and General Social Survey, the Health Cohesion Index tracks and compares progress and changes, providing an understanding of Australia's progress over the past 15 years. The 2023 index highlights positive strides in health and support for multiculturalism but declines in sense of national pride and belonging and trust for the federal government. Australians experience good health and longer life expectancies with positive trends in well-being. 86% of adults consider their health good, very good or excellent. Daily smokers have decreased to just 11%. Alcohol consumption exceeding lifetime risk guidelines decreased to 15%. Persistent mental health challenges brought by the pandemic but disproportionately affects marginalised communities. Happiness declined from 6% to 78%. Financial satisfaction declined from 1% to 64%. Dean of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr Kudzai Kanhutu said, I've come to see the Australian Cohesion Report as is actually a diagnostic tool how we work to embed those teachings and those learnings into the way we respond to healthcare need, whether it's during the pandemic or in response to psychological distress. As with any diagnostic tool, and I'd consider the ACI as actually being a population level health diagnostic tool as opposed to a patient one. It allows us to see trends in social determinants of health. And in doing that, it also asks the greater question, which is if you're seeing that even though people, you know, 86% of people reported that they have excellent, good or very good health, but a third of those people also say that they felt a lack of trust during COVID or that a third of youth say that they don't feel a sense of Australian belonging or there's a high level of psychological distress, what do you actually do with those trends? 
So as a diagnostic tool, how I would, how I've taken or conceived of these findings is to say to myself, the height of, I guess, unethical behavior as a health and well-being practitioner is to see a trend or to do a test and then not respond because the diagnostic test is not the be all and end all, is the beginning of an inquiry that then asks you, well, what is your therapeutic intervention? Recognition and support for multiculturalism and diversity is growing, but national pride and belonging is declining. 38% of adults agree that ethnic minorities should be given Australian government assistance to maintain their customs and traditions, growing by 55% since 2007. But 16% of Australians have experienced discrimination because of their skin colour, ethnic origin or religion, up 46% since 2007. The Honourable Andrew Giles, MP Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs, said... Social cohesion is much spoken about but not easily understood unless it's measured. And we know that long-term data-driven analysis of issues affecting migrant and multicultural communities, including social cohesion, has been sorely lacking for too long. I'm pleased to say that support for migrant diversity as a way to make Australia stronger has increased steadily in the last 15 years. It's up by almost 20% than than when we compare it from 2007. And almost 50% more people now agree that cultural minorities should receive a helping hand from government in order to maintain customs and traditions. Some findings, however, should give us all pause. Our sense of national pride alongside community involvement has decreased. It's back to its lowest level since 2007. Alarmingly, levels of belonging and a sense of social justice are now lower than they were before the pandemic. COVID provided us all with a salient example of the dire impacts of our social cohesion where government fails to engage with or to properly understand culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Who can forget when migrants were told to go home? Who can forget when Google Translate was relied upon to translate vital health communications? Perhaps most shameful of all was when the former government was nowhere to be seen when racial vilification of Asian Australians grew during the pandemic. In the first part of 2020, the Human Rights Commission reported that around a quarter of people who lodged complaints of racial discrimination were targeted because of COVID-19. The Albanese government is taking this seriously and taking action. If we learn from the failures of the pandemic, government must ensure that public services, agencies and service providers constantly build their cultural competence and understanding. But over the last 50 years, we haven't fully taken stock of how these government bodies support and indeed may fail to support multicultural communities across Australia. Accordingly, the Albanese government's Multicultural Framework Review will evaluate the effectiveness of existing policies and programs in promoting social inclusion, respect for diversity too, and will identify areas for improvement. Trust in federal government has declined since 2021. Only 41% of Australians say Australian government should be trusted to do the right thing by the Australian people. And only 40% of Australians agree people living on low income receive enough financial support. Trust in fellow citizens, however, remained high throughout 2022. Professor of Psychology at Australian National University, Professor Kate Reynolds said. Social cohesion is vital for prosperity. We know that society functions effectively, democracies function effectively where there is social cohesion. 
And yet in this report, uh, we see on a number of indicators, including with respect to belonging and engagement, a decline over time. What we saw during COVID was actually that those declines were halted and in, in some cases reversed. For me, that gives me more confidence that these kind of measures are sensitive to social and political life and that we should be taking these declines very seriously and working to try and find some solutions to strengthen social cohesion, including in the area of connection and belonging. And we need to do so with some urgency. We can look to what worked during COVID because during COVID we did see a strengthening of social cohesion. And so some of the things that we saw during COVID around uh, leadership, around governance, around addressing inequality, there was effort put into explaining, connecting, communicating with the Australian population about what we were doing, what we were doing well, how we were doing it, what we needed to do, establishing some of those consensus and community-wide norms around how we should think about ourselves and our circumstance. I also note that the public service is a potential catalyst for connection and a sense of respect and being valued amongst the Australian population. And that perhaps thinking of the role of the public service in that way could be important in strengthening social cohesion. Educational obtained rates are growing with 69% of adults with a certificate three or above and 36% with a university degree. Voter enrolment is up to 97%, but voter turnout is down to 90%. Less people are donating and volunteering and being involved in a local, social, political or community group. So where to from here, as Professor Kate Reynolds suggests? On a number of occasions, uh, myself and colleagues have called for a Minister of Social Cohesion, specifically because it's so critical to our future. So I think it's about learning from those moments, why did they work so well, and trying to embed it into a longer-term deliberate plan to actually strengthen the social and political fabric in Australia and to do that with some purpose and urgency. For more information about the Australian Cohesion Index, go to our website, thewire.org.au. That was John King from 3ZZZ Melbourne reporting for The Wire. The Republicans are in the midst of a heated primary. The Democrats are in discussion as to whether Joe Biden should continue as their candidate. Luckily for the Democrats living overseas, the opportunity to still be a part of the democratic process is still viable. Thanks to organisations like Democrats Abroad, Wendy Gaylord, the chair of the Victorian chapter for Democrats Abroad, explained. What is Democrats Abroad? The Democrats Abroad is is a global organization that assists American Democrats living outside the United States, and not just with uh, necessarily a specific political issue or anything, but there's issues, of course, for getting out. I mean, we manage to help people to vote from overseas, um, to register to vote, um, and with other issues that come out up as well, like taxes, passport issues, anything like that. So that's basically what we are, but it is an all-volunteer organization with a focus on Democrats living outside the United States. How is the primary process done with Democrats abroad, considering everyone is abroad and the process would be organized differently from country to country? Yeah, so for example, um, in this coming election, uh, presumably since we might only have one candidate, it'll be probably a lot easier. We hold um, what's called uh, global primary polling stations. Uh, So, for example, at the last election in different areas of the major cities, uh, all of 
our members were invited to come along and cast their ballots so that we could uh, assist them with that process and send them in for them. Um, and uh, so this year, you know, this is, it might not be as complicated, like you said, because it may just be one candidate from the Democratic Party. But that's pretty much how it's done around the world is a lot of like, for example, here, I'll hold Zoom drop ins or maybe some live you know, in-person social meetings to help people to get registered in their respective states and to understand when their various primaries are being held. Um, and then they'll also be invited to, if they want to show up and vote in, uh, and cast a ballot in person, or they can just, we can, we can help them know, you know, this is when you have to get it you know, sent in by, and this is where you have to send it. So that's basically what drives that. What level of influence does Democrats abroad have when it comes to electing a candidate for president? Well, it's a good question because, as a matter of fact, in Milan, we, we actually are, have been quite successful. Um, the overseas vote was significant in this last midterm and in the 2020 election. Uh, in particular, I believe it was Georgia that um, made the difference on the Senate uh, going Democrat. So, and, and Australia plays no small role in that, as a matter of fact. So that's, um, we're very proud of that. Um, nonetheless, I will say that a small percentage of Americans living abroad actually vote. And there's different reasons for that, but I'm just happy we can get the ones, uh, the, the numbers we do get. It may be that it'll be a bigger turnout again in 2024 because of, it's going to be quite a, I, I don't know what else to say, this is going to be quite a contested, ugly election. And people have been turning out in greater numbers, just not just in the United States, but from overseas in the last uh, couple of cycles. So yes, we do have an impact. Um, I'm very proud to say as compared to our opposing party. That was Gabriel D'Angelo speaking to Wendy Gaylord, the chair of the Victorian chapter for Democrats. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations where the program has been produced. And we pay our respects to the Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shiku coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.